Heavenly Father, thank you as we have been reflecting on this evening that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Please tonight use the preaching of your word to fill us again with certainty in the gospel. Please soften our hearts to hear and respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting on verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? for I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. 
After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, those of you who know me may find this hard to believe, but I am a pretty opinionated person, to say the least. And as I was growing up, as I was a teenager, one manifestation of being quite opinionated was that I didn't want to go to my village Christmas carol service anymore. I had been to many Christmas carol services before, but now that I was a teenager and I was grown up and I could think for myself, I thought that the Christmas story was a load of nonsense and didn't want to go any more. Now, I suspect most of us here tonight weren't so much as a killjoy as I was as a teenager, but I wonder whether we, even as Christians, can also feel at times that the Christmas story seems a bit too fantastical. A virgin birth, angels, three wise men, it all sounds a bit much. And the Christmas story, if true, has implications for everyone and everything. At the heart of the Christmas story is Jesus Christ. Christmas is about the Son of God entering history. He came, as he describes at the end of Luke's gospel, to suffer and on the third day rise from the dead so that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And this, to say the least, has big implications. I go to Glasgow Queen Street Station every week, about twice a week, and even as someone who believes, it's challenging to look on the crowds, all these various people, and go, yes, Jesus is who all these various people with various lives need to hear about. And this is where Luke's gospel becomes helpful. Luke's Christmas story, as we've seen tonight, doesn't begin with a dramatic dream or lots of characters rushing about. It begins with Luke describing the careful research he has undergone to prepare his account. Now, I'm sure none of you here tonight have done this, but Luke's gospel is not like a first-year student's essay written quickly the night before with a few vague references that can be pulled apart pretty easily. If you look with me in verse 2, we learn that Luke learned from eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. In verse 3, he goes further. He has followed all things closely for some time past. From Luke's interaction with these eyewitnesses, he can be very specific with detail, as we see in our passage tonight. If you look an example in verse 11, um, he says that it was the right side of the altar of incense where Gabriel stood. Now, this careful research is so that the man we meet in verse 3, most excellent Theophilus, will be certain concerning the things he has been taught. His name, Theophilus, means lover of God, and he doesn't need converting, but he does need convincing. From reading the rest of Luke's gospel, we can see what Theophilus needs convincing about. He needs intellectual certainty to know that what he believes is actually true. 
He needs encouragement in the face of people rejecting the gospel. And he needs something day by day to keep him believing these big truths. And so, to use another example, Luke's gospel is not a dusty, complicated PhD only understood by an expert few. Luke wants Theophilus and wants us to be certain that the claims about Christmas, about Jesus, are true so that we respond with certainty. This is what I will focus on in my sermon tonight, starting with the certainty we can have because Jesus is the fulfillment of all salvation history. The Christmas story, as you may know, is a jam-packed story. It's full of songs, it's full of characters, it's full of messages. It's quite easy to forget that what comes before Christmas is 400 years of silence. The book of Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament before Jesus came, ends the Old Testament rather bleakly. The Lord of hosts is offended by Israel's disregarding of him. He is wearied by their words. He even wishes that the temple doors were shut. And then came these 400 years of silence with no new words from the Lord. If you were an Israelite at the time, you may have thought, has the Lord given up on us? Will he just let us wither away into nothing? But Malachi did offer some hope for Israel. Malachi wrote of a faithful remnant who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. We meet some of the faithful remnant in our passage tonight, Elizabeth and Zechariah. In verse 6, if you look with me, we learn, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. In dark, confusing times, Elizabeth and Zechariah still trust the Lord and his promises. They don't think God's forgotten us, let's do what we like, let's pick and choose which of God's laws we'll follow. Their righteous behavior is a sign of their trust in God. And they trust in the Lord despite what we learn in verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Luke doesn't expand on how Elizabeth and Zechariah feel about this, but I think this is without question a cause of great pain for the couple. We later learn in verse 13 that their prayer has been heard, and the implication from this is that they have been praying, maybe for decades since they were first married, for this child. Despite all these years of pain and confusion, they struggle on, still trusting the Lord and his good promises. For the reader, however, there is excitement in verse 7. And there is excitement because the highs of Israel's history, the big developments in its salvation story, often start with a faithful, childless couple in seemingly hopeless surroundings. It happened with Abraham and Sarah right back at the beginning in the book of Genesis. 
God provided the 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah with Isaac. It happened with Hannah again in the book of 1 Samuel, where God gives the baby Samuel, who would go on to anoint King David. With Zechariah and Elizabeth, we sense with excitement that the cogs of Israel's history are turning again. And as many of the great figures of Israel were, John will be a Nazarite, someone who dedicated themselves to a distinctive life of service to the Lord. That's what it means if we look at verse 15, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So again, with John the Baptist, more boxes are being ticked. Not only is he from a faithful childless couple, tick, but he will also be a Nazarite, another tick. But the angel Gabriel announces that something even bigger than the first descendant of Abraham, Isaac, or the first Davidic king is coming now. This baby, John the Baptist, is the warm-up act for something all of Israel's history and all of creation's history has been building up to. Now, I don't know what John the Baptist means to you. Probably not the joy, gladness, and rejoicing that Gabriel tells us that his birth will bring in verse 14. A minister called R.C. Sproul uh, said that John the Baptist is probably the most underrated person in the New Testament. Underrated not by the writers of the New Testament, but underrated by us. Jesus himself will later say in chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. John the Baptist is different, for he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. God the Holy Spirit is active throughout the Old Testament. He rushes upon certain individuals, judges and kings for a specific task. Here, however, John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit isn't just rushing upon him for a certain task. The Spirit will fill John the Baptist even from the womb. And so, John the Baptist, this promised baby must have a bigger task, bigger than all the great leaders in Israel's history. And this bigger task is finally explained if you look with me in verses 16 to 17. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Luke is quoting here from the end of Malachi, where God promised that one day he himself, God would come to the temple. But before this, and to signpost his arrival, God would send a messenger like Elijah who would prepare people for his coming. And Luke is saying John the Baptist is that messenger. Now, sometimes when we hear or see something, we know something else is coming. When I hear keys jingle, see the lights go on, my front door open and noises up the stair, I know that my flatmate Mark is back in the flat. 
When I was a child and heard the cattle grid rumble at about 7 p.m. with a car, I knew that my dad was back from work. Luke is writing to Theophilus, who is probably thinking, can I really be certain that Jesus is God, that he is really the fulfillment of everything? And Luke is saying, yes, you can be certain. If John the Baptist has come, just as the Lord said he would, if John the Baptist is definitely the warm-up act, Jesus Christ is God, coming as Malachi prophesied. And if you are here tonight and aren't really sure about these claims for yourself, I would say please keep reading Luke. His gospel is crammed full of evidence like this. And whilst we have seen the great fulfillment that all of history was building up to, Jesus Christ, I think there is still something we can learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth's waiting on the promises of God. We live in a time, don't we, where it may seem God has forgotten his salvation plan. Modern life seems so chaotic and random. Wickedness often seems to flourish and go unpunished and unseen. Our prayers often seem to go unheard. It may be easy to look at the world around us and go, God doesn't seem to be working anymore. What does it matter if I follow him anymore? Disregard a few of his commandments here and there. But I hope you see from tonight, right from the beginning with Abraham and Sarah through to Zechariah and Elizabeth, in hopeless situations, God fulfills his promises. He fulfills his salvation plan. Now the focus with Zechariah and Elizabeth having the baby John is God's salvation plan being fulfilled. Luke is not writing here to say that everything painful we pray about will be resolved in this life. God doesn't promise to take away all our pain now. However, if we look at verse 13, the words, your prayer has been heard, it gives me immense comfort that Although not everything painful that I pray about now has been answered in the particular way that I would wish, our Creator and Heavenly Father hears and treasures the prayers of us, His weak people. And so, as we wait for the second coming of Jesus, let's keep trusting in God and His salvation plan, knowing that day where God will wipe away every tear is coming. And this brings me on to my second, and you'll be relieved here, briefer point. How should we respond to God's salvation plan being fulfilled? I wonder what response, if you were reading this for the first time, you would expect from the righteous priest, Zechariah. Maybe joy that God is now fulfilling his promises after 400 years of silence maybe gladness that he and Elizabeth should not only be parents, but parents of John the Baptist. No, the response we get from Zechariah is wrong address. With an angel in front of him, a supernatural being that stands in the presence of God that terrifies Zechariah, 
this still isn't enough for Zechariah. He needs more than God's word being delivered by an angel. Zechariah asks in verse 18, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, we might view this response as rational, as a fair point. Luke is clear that this is a bad way to respond to centuries upon centuries of God's salvation plan being fulfilled. Unbelief offends God. And we get the verdict from the angel in verse 19. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah's response compares to Mary's response, which Mark will take us through next week. In comparison to the priest, if you flick with me forward to verse 38 of chapter 1, we read Mary's response. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Through having Zechariah and Mary side by side, it's easier to see the problems in Zechariah's reaction. Mary, although confused at how a virgin should conceive, still trusts that God will do as he says, and so responds to God's promises with faith. Zechariah, however, responds to God's word with unbelief, not trusting that God's word is enough, asking, how shall I know this? It is important to remember that our God is huge when thinking about this. Hear how Psalm 90 describes him. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. It is perfectly reasonable that if the one who rules every atom should promise to bring about a child from an elderly couple, it will happen. And God has gone out of his way to make Zechariah certain about this word. He's written the prophecy in Malachi 400 years before. He sent an angel with this word to confirm it to Zechariah, and yet Zechariah responds with unbelief. How small is God to Zechariah that gray hairs and old age overpower the one who created the heavens and the earth? How small is God to Zechariah that his first reaction to the angel is, go back to God, he got it wrong when he sent you with this. As I've said, Luke is writing for Theophilus to be certain concerning the things he has taught. Now, Zechariah doesn't have certainty in God's promises, so Luke is telling Theophilus, don't be like Zechariah. Don't respond to the word of God with unbelief and rejection. Because it is easy to respond to God's word with unbelief. 
in Theophilus' day and in our day. Do I really need to take notice of God and live a life for him? Who cares what his word says? Who cares about the good news? How could this historical figure take upon my sins? And is he really coming back? Really? Unbelief is scorning God's son, sent to die for our sins and carrying on in rebellion against our creator and maker. For Zechariah, unbelief in God's promises involved him being muted. But the rest of scripture tells us for those who persist in unbelief, there are eternal consequences for rejecting God's good promises. But unbelief, whilst offensive to God, does not take him off guard. Luke is unembarrassed here in our passage tonight and in the rest of his gospel and acts that many respond to the God's word with unbelief. Theophilus and we, therefore, should not be surprised when others laugh or hate us for what we believe about Jesus. And wonderfully, Theophilus should also rejoice that unbelief can become belief. Zechariah's unbelief is not the end of Zechariah's story, thankfully. If you'll flick with me forward to verse 64 of chapter 1, we will see Zechariah's tongue being loosed as he believes God's promises, claims them for his own, and is freed from the chains of unbelief. As we see in his song from verse 67, Zechariah goes from being a man who questions God's mission to being a man fully on board with God's mission. I know this in my own life, that God in his tender mercy can take those who scoff at him, scoff at his promises and make them one of his children. Zechariah should encourage Theophilus and encourage us to crack on with telling others about Jesus, knowing that unbelief can turn to singing God's praises. As well as telling others about Jesus, Luke wants us to keep growing in certainty about Jesus. Zechariah may have responded to God and his word well in the past, but it's how he is responding today when seeing the angel Gabriel that matters. Throughout Luke's gospel, it isn't just a one-time thing from unbelief to belief where our response to God's word matters. Our ongoing walk and trust in God's word matters. Not only are we to take up our cross, but Luke tells us that we are to take up our cross daily. Not only are we to bear fruit, but Luke says we are to bear fruit with perseverance. As Christians, we need to be growing in our certainty, in our rejoicing in God's word. As you may know, later in Luke's gospel in chapter 10, Jesus enters a house with two sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. When Martha complains at her sister not helping her, Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, 
You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. For us to treasure Jesus more in our hearts, for us to grow in certainty so that we tell others, the mechanism isn't us rustling up an enthusiastic feeling within ourselves, pumping ourselves up or doing more. From Mary and Martha, from Zechariah, from the rest of Luke, we learn that our listening to God's word is in fact what will grow us. And wonderfully, Luke has given Theophilus, given us this gospel so that we can all keep growing in certainty as we come back to Jesus in the word. Many of us will soon have our schedules thrown off by Christmas. Many of us will be leaving St. Andrews for a month. We'll be busy seeing family, eating a lot, organizing presents, buying them last minute. I think it would be worth us thinking, what does it look like for me to keep responding well to Jesus in his word this Christmas and beyond? What does it look like for me to keep treasuring the promises of God day by day? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you want us to be certain about the hope that we have. Thank you that all your promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, please guard us over Christmas and beyond, that we keep responding to Jesus and your word well. Please keep us going back to Jesus in the word and growing in our rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to finish now standing and singing two hymns.